Hello. Greetings. Thanks for joining us today. What are we looking for out of life? What are our goals in our relationships with one another? How can we find harmony and wholeness that we so desperately seek? These are some of the most important and difficult questions in life. Not made any easier by the fact that we hear so many different answers that come from different people who claim to have authority. Who can we believe? Who can we trust? Even within ourselves, very deep down, we desire to find full and true unity. We want to be one. The United States, the seal, says e pluribus unum. One out of many, one. So many in song talk about being one and finding unity. And as we've begun to see in the New Testament, Jesus speaks of seeking and finding unity in John 17, 20 through 23. We've seen that unity has begun with the one God, that God is a spirit, he is our creator, he is intelligent and beyond us, that he is one in three persons, he has relational unity within himself. In Deuteronomy 6 and 4, hear O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, and in John 17, 20 through 23, they may all be one in verse 21, that just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. That when we look at God as one in relational unity, the Trinity, one in three persons, we can really come to a better understanding of both God and ourselves. That God, in 1 John 4, it is love. That he shares in love within himself, and he wants to share love in relationship with his offspring. And that offspring is humanity, made in his image in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and in Acts 17, 28. And man is made to share in relationship with God and with one another. And that sounds beautiful. That sounds wonderful. We're supposed to share in relationship with God. We're supposed to share in relationship with one another. Uh, and to enjoy love of God and love with one another and be content and happy. But what happened? Because when we look around, we may see traces of beauty. But we see a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, abuse, hatred, and discord. What has gone so wrong? And what can be done about it? And that's going to be our subject matter that we're going to discuss today. The problems that exist in the creation and what God has done about it through the one man. So as we've said, we can see great beauty in the creation, but we notice that not all seems well. Things fall apart, things corrode, and things die. There's great suffering, misery, and evil inflicted upon the earth and people. And everything seems to be subject to these forces. It doesn't seem very good at all at times. Well, what's the problem then? According to the Bible, the problem is sin. Now, we can understand this word sin in different ways. It's a word that often is missed in popular culture. Just normally looked at as something that uh, somebody is trying to guilt you into thinking something fun is, is really bad. Uh, but in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, sin is understood as missing the mark, which is not exactly doing what God desires. Sin is transgression, which means we violate God's standards in the order of creation. And sin is rebellion. Thinking, feeling, or acting in conscious resistance against God and His purposes. And we can see how this worked out with the very first sin and its consequences. That in the beginning, Adam and Eve were given one commandment. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. 
But Eve was tempted to eat the fruit. She saw that it was good uh, and would make one wise. And so she ate and she caused her husband to eat in Genesis chapter 3. And then they are suffering the consequences of the curse. It's very important for us to understand a few things uh, that has come as a consequence of this particular action. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following, Paul says the following, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was in, in the world, indeed, before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of one who was to come. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and the many would become sinners. Then in chapter 8, Paul also talks about this, that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And that the creation is currently in bondage to decay, and is groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. So when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, the whole creation was subjected to futility and corruption. Sin entered the world through Adam's transgression and through sin, death. And now all the creation suffers the consequences of sin and death, which is corruption and decay. And this is why everything falls apart. This is why even those who have done any, nothing wrong, like animals or small children, often suffer. Sin is in the world, and therefore all suffer because of sin. And if that all wasn't bad enough, the worst consequence of Adam and Eve's transgression was separation from God, a fissure in that relationship that God intended to have with humanity. Now, this separation was first marked out physically. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they were compelled to work the ground for food, and they were made subject to death in Genesis chapter 3. Now, it's true that they did not die that day, but that's the day they began dying. And also, in Isaiah 59 and verse 2, we're told that sin and iniquity separates us from our God. In John 1 and verse 4, God is the source of light and life. And so, what is death but separation from light and life? So it is that sin separates us from God spiritually and physically from life. At this point, we might wonder, wait a sec, wait a second. If God is love and God loves us, how could he let such a thing happen? And this is where it's important for us to remember that God is love in 1 John 4, 8. But in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not insist on its own way. And we're going to come back to this principle many times. God created us so that we could learn to love him. If love is forced, it, either by him or by us, it's not love at all. Love, by its very nature, demands choice. If God compels or coerces us into loving him, he is no longer acting according to love. If we had no choice but to love God, it is not love as we know it. And so the choice was given to mankind, even though God knew what the choice was going to be. This remains still the best possible creation, which isn't article of faith, but if we believe who God is, and that he loves us, and that he is all-powerful and all-knowing, we must believe that this is the best possible creation, all things considered, and we need to trust God in this matter. And so that's why Adam and Eve were given the choice to follow God or reject him, and that choice is still given to us to this day.
Okay, so we've been separated from God. So what happens? Well, God hasn't given up. God still loves man. In Matthew 5, 45 through 47, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and he does good for those who, uh, for all people. In Acts 14, 15 through 17. Now, man would like to imagine that he could just kind of skirt the line, that, okay, he's transgressed, but he's going to ride that line right on the other side of sin. But that's not exactly the way that it works. In reality, the separation that we have from God grows ever more pronounced over time, not because God has moved, but because man persists in ever greater rebellion and depravity in behavior. Man continues in his rebellion. They recognize powers that are greater than they are, but they believe that they are enshrined in the things that God has created, be it statues of various animals or natural forces, or in our own culture, in the things God has made in terms of money and sex and fame, uh, science and things of that nature. And all of that is idolatry, condemned by Paul in Romans 1, 18-25 as giving the honor and worship due the Creator to the creation, the things that the Creator has made. In Romans 8, 7, and 8, Paul is very clear that in this condition, in the flesh, man cannot serve God, and he is hostile toward him. Now, man still is made in God's image. He's capable of some good, but that image is ever more distorted on account of the disfiguring influence of sin. And this is something vividly illustrated in the earliest generations of mankind. So after Adam and Eve sin, they have uh, children, Abel and Cain, and Cain kills his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Within a few generations, by Genesis 6, the author tells us that the heart of man uh, inclined toward evil continually. The only things he thought about were evil. And God felt compelled to purge the land by a flood in, in the subsequent chapters. And only Noah and his sons and daughters-in-law and wife and those on the arks were saved. After that, humanity still maintained one language in Genesis 11. And they decided to build a tower at Babel. We know it as Babylon, and they were going to make a name for themselves there to keep from being scattered, which is another form of resisting God and his purposes. And so, on their own, in Ephesians chapter 2, this is put so well, man ends up being separated from God, separated from hope, separated from one another, persisting in sin, by nature children of wrath. That's a terrible condition to be in, right? But you can think, wait a second, you know, there are all these people in the, in the Bible who were good people, righteous people, right? Well, yeah, yeah God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants to be a blessing to the earth. But even they proved incapable of reflecting God and his glory to mankind. They persisted in sin and idolatry, and God was not pleased with them in Genesis 12 through 2 Chronicles 36. Now, if a person dies while separated from God, that separation is made eternal. Such a one is condemned to hell. In Romans chapter 2, 5 through 11, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Now, this is very odious to a lot of people. How could a loving God allow anybody to suffer in a place of torment? Well, we got to go back to that idea that love cannot coerce or compel again. If people did not want to follow after God in life, why should God force them to seek the good and right after death? In these circumstances, God is not actively condemning people. Instead, he's giving them over to what they meant, really wanted based upon what they thought and felt and how they acted. They wanted to remain separated from him and all that for which he stands, and he allows them to do that. And so sin is our great problem. It corrupts the creation, it disfigures mankind, it causes physical and spiritual separation from God and life, and can be permanent in those consequences. So what are we going to do about it? 
And that's where we humans uh, like to think ourselves as problem solvers. We find a problem, we solve it. The problem is that our sin problem has a solution problem as well. We cannot fix this one on our own. It seems harsh and unfair to a lot of people. A lot of people want to say, Hey, I know I've done some bad things, but I've done a lot of good things. And shouldn't those good things outweigh the bad things? In this view, our good deeds and bad deeds are weighed in some kind of balance. Sounds good, right? Well, remember when we mentioned how we've been disfigured by sin? That even our thinking and reasoning powers have been tainted by sin. We like to think things are good and right. Uh, but the end of those ways is death in Proverbs 14.12. It's not within a man to direct his own steps, says Jeremiah in Jeremiah 10.23. And so maybe we do better to consider what our Creator said and to learn His wisdom and to be a little wary about what might sound good to us. Now, we've already established that God is a God of love, and that's true. But He's also a God of justice and righteousness. In the Psalms 9, 7, 33, 5, 37, 28, and 89, 14, we're told that God has made justice and righteousness the basis of his rule in the creation, and that his creation runs on justice and righteousness. And in fact, in Romans 1, 19, and 20, we talked about God's eternal power and divine nature. That's also seen in terms of justice and righteousness. As human beings, we have a built-in sense of right and wrong. It is true that precise definitions have varied over time, but... Everybody seems to understand certain things are wrong, such as murder and adultery. And to this day, people feel wronged when they perceive they've been treated unjustly. Where did this sense of right and wrong come from? Such a moral law testifies to the Creator and our relationship with Him, but also to the standard of justice and righteousness that He has established. From Romans 12, 2, 14-16. Now, what is justice? The argument That has been an argued issue for over 2,500 years, but the general contour of justice is evident. If, somebody, if something is just, it means that good behavior is rewarded and bad behavior punished. And so God, as a God of justice and righteousness, has made known in what he has revealed to mankind what is just and right. In the Old Testament, we see specific commands were given to, to the men of old, and that God gave the law to Israel. In the New Covenant, we see the character of God, and thus the character of justice and righteousness in Jesus, in John 14, 6, and Hebrews 1, 3. Now, these aren't arbitrary standards. Uh, God didn't just draw these lines just for the fun of it, just to cause us pain. No, they teach us how to live in harmony with him and his creation if we're going to follow them. And they warn us of the disastrous consequences of disharmony with God and his creation if we don't. So there's not just personal consequences for sin. Our relationship with the creation suffers because of sin, and even in uh, the environment. And we can see Hebrews, Hosea 4, well, Hosea talks about all the awful things being done on the, in the land of Israel, and so he says a land mourns. And there are environmental consequences of sin. So God, as a God of justice, will indeed reward good behavior, but he must punish wrong and evil behavior. And those who transgress his laws will be punished with death, which is the consequence of sin in Romans 6 and verse 23. So God is just. God has to be just. So is it possible that all of our good deeds will matter the way we'd like to think? Will they tip the balance in our favor? Unfortunately for us, that's not how it works. The 
brother of the Lord, James, in James 2, verse 10, says, For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, for instance, if somebody is guilty of stealing, you cannot stand before God and say, well, yeah, he stole, but he didn't commit adultery, he didn't murder, and he did all these good things. Because if you say he's stolen, he has transgressed the command to not steal, and therefore, when he stands for God, he stands as a transgressor. And the transgressor must suffer the punishment given. This is why Paul in Romans 3 and verse 20 says that no one can stand before God as righteous because they've done the law. Because at some point, all of us have sinned, and we continually fall short of God's glory in Romans 3 and verse 23. And so, because we haven't kept that law perfectly, we can't stand before God because of that. The law condemns us as sinners and to be condemned. And so that's our solution problem. We've all sinned. If We stand before God as guilty of transgression. We deserve the consequence and punishment of death for our transgression. And if we die for our sin, that is just, and we suffer, have suffered the penalty. We can't make up or atone for that wrongdoing by our own actions. And so, on our own, we stand condemned before God, separated by, from Him by our transgressions, alienated from one another because of fear, and lonely and seeking a home. How sad. How sad that is. And it would be very bleak. And it's a bad situation. So we've committed sin. A penalty must be paid if justice is going to be satisfied. And that puts everybody in a bind. Because if God just arbitrarily eliminated the penalty for transgression, how could he really be said to be the God of justice? If he just waved in some people, that is not just. Now, if we were consigned to bear the penalty, no matter what, we shouldn't be having this conversation. We should be eating, drinking, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But thanks be to God that he loved us, and he does not want us to be sent to such a horrible fate. That he has found a way to honor the standard of justice and righteousness while providing a means of reconciliation with mankind through the one man. This one man had humble beginnings in the flesh. He was born to a peasant carpenter and his teenage wife in the backcountry of Galilee. Galilee itself was considered the backcountry of Israel. He never went to school. It was evident to many, though, that he was a very extraordinary person. He came to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was recognized by many in Israel as a prophet or a spokesperson for God. John saw him and said he was a lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. John baptized Jesus. The Holy Spirit descended upon him. The Father in heaven voiced his commendation of him as his son. He was tempted by the devil. While Adam had fallen in sin, Jesus did not. He then went about Galilee and Judea over three years, teaching and doing good. When he taught them, he used images familiar to them, farming, fishing, trading. He taught as one having authority, not like the scribes and the other religious authorities in their midst. He taught difficult things. Love your enemy. Do good to those who would not do good things to you. Humble yourselves. Suffer. He not only taught those things, though, which many people have taught, but remarkably, he himself did them doing good for others. At the same time, he spoke constantly about the coming kingdom of God. He gathered 12 men around him, a motley crew of fishermen, tax collectors, revolutionaries, and other men of the lower class. 
This kingdom would be nothing like anybody, anything it had ever seen. Its rules and guidelines would turn the world upside down. But despite teaching and doing good, he earned the ire of the religious authorities, and they conspired to put him to death. In the time of the Passover feast, around the year 30, they accused him, condemned him, and handed him over to the Roman authorities to kill him. And those Roman authorities carried out that sentence by the most humiliating and excruciating form of death imaginable, crucifixion. Now, after that, a lot of people thought it would be the end of it. He wasn't the first person to claim to be a king killed by Romans on a cross, and he wouldn't be the last. But then came the most astonishing turn of events, something that has not been seen before or since. He was raised from the dead in the resurrection in bodily form, never to die again. He spent some time with his followers, and then he ascended back to heaven, where God the Father gave him all rule and authority over heaven and earth. And those followers began telling all the Jews, and then other people as well, about this one man, this Jesus, how he died and rose again, and how God made him Lord, and that all people should serve him. And this message took the world by storm. Nothing would be the same. Now the story of Jesus is found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, early part of the book of Acts. And we've called it the Gospel, or Good News, of Jesus of Nazareth ever since. Now, a little bit later, the Apostle Paul, and the Hebrews author, would try to explain to those who would believe in Jesus how God has rescued us from sin through him. It's interesting to note that very soon after man fell into sin, that man recognized that he would do well if he would offer something to God to pay the penalty for his sin. And so that's why both Abel and Cain would offer, from the fruit of their efforts, sacrifices to God. And by the end of that, that time period, Genesis 4.26, people would call upon the name of Yahweh in sacrifices and in prayer. Now, it was an impulse that would be commended and explained in Leviticus. And in Leviticus, bulls and goats and sheep would be sacrificed for sin. The animals were sacrificed because they were innocent, and the sins of the guilty person would in some way be transferred to the animal in ritual, in Leviticus 16 and 17, for instance. But the blood of bulls and goats cannot really take away sin, as the Hebrew author would explain in Hebrews 10 and verse 4. The sacrificial system existed to teach the people the ugliness of sin and the kind of mechanism that was necessary if the penalty of sin would be covered or atoned by another. Now this is why John called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because he was innocent in his life. He did not sin even though he was tempted to do so in Hebrews 4.15. He did not deserve to die. But he gave up his life so that we would be forgiven of our sin in John 3.16 and 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. As a perfect man, he was the only one who could pay the penalty for our sin. And his one act of sacrifice was sufficient to atone for all sin. He was the ultimate high priest, as the Hebrew author would explain, because he offered himself up once for all. And he did not have to keep offering himself because of the perfection of his one sacrifice. When we read in Romans chapter 5, our reading was choppy because we were trying to understand what happened when Adam sinned. Paul's whole point, though, is not to talk really about the first Adam, but to talk about the second one, talk about Jesus. That the free gift that God gave us is not like the trespass. If many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so it's in this way that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Remember, we're guilty, but we cannot atone for ourselves. Jesus was innocent, and therefore his blood can atone for our sin. Through his life, we can have life. And in Christ, God's justice is satisfied. In Christ, God shows us grace and mercy because he gave us what is not deserved, grace, and did not give us what we did deserve, mercy. He has given us a chance to be reconciled to him, and he has not given us over to condemnation. And in his resurrection, we can understand that death is not the end. And we can cherish hope that we also will have life after life after death in our own resurrection when Jesus returns in 1 Corinthians 15. And so, by our own efforts, we cannot reconcile ourselves to God. But God proves willing to reconcile us to himself through Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Son. As is stated in Romans chapter 5, For while we were still weak, verse 6, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God be praised. So we have the opportunity to be reconciled to God through Jesus. But God is love, as we've mentioned many times already. That means he does not compel or coerce. He doesn't force us into our relationship with him through Jesus. In Jesus, we have access to that relationship, but we need to accept it. And so we notice in the Bible that when this gospel of Jesus goes forth, people are invited to be reconciled to God through Jesus because Jesus is now ruling and everybody's going to have to answer to him based on what he has said in John 12, 48 and Acts 17, 31. That if people want a restored relationship with God, they need to follow what Jesus has said. All right, well, what has Jesus said? What are we supposed to do? Thankfully, he, Jesus gave authority to the 12 men who followed him around. We call them the apostles. And those apostles told people about him and what they needed to do if they were going to be rescued from sin. And they insisted that people would have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God in Acts 16.31 and Romans chapter 10. This belief is not just declaring, hey, I have mental recognition that this is true about Jesus. Uh, as James will say in James chapter 2, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. We need to trust in Jesus, and that trust of Jesus as our Lord is made evident in our obedience in following and after him. In James chapter 2. Now those who will believe must declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of living God, before God and others, in confession in 1 Timothy 6.12 and Romans 10.9 and 10. And if we're going to trust in Jesus, it means we're going to have to change our hearts and minds. We're going to have to follow this command that Jesus gave to repent in Matthew 4.17 and Acts 2.38. When we repent, we do feel sorrow for the, what we have done in the past, but we must go further. We need to change our minds for the better, to commit ourselves to think and feel and act the way Jesus thought, felt, and acted. And then we would need to submit ourselves to immersion in water for the remission of our sin, dying to sin that we can rise as new creatures, servants of Jesus, as made clear in Acts 2.38, Romans 6.3-7, 1 Peter 3.21. It's at this point 
that people who believe are now considered disciples of Christ, back in restored relationship with God. Matthew 20, 18, 20, and many other passages. So that's how it begins, but we return to the passage we've come to many times in John 17, 20 through 23. That if we're going to truly be one, we must be in God as God is in himself. The Spirit must be in us if we're going to be raised as Jesus was raised. In Romans 8, 1 through 11. This is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in whom we are to walk. So how is it possible for God to be in us and we in God? And again, this is a very difficult conversation because we don't have a lot revealed and therefore we can't have a lot of understanding about the spiritual realm. But as we've seen in John 17, 20-23, that we are to be one as the Father is in the Son and the Son in the Father, that believers also be in the Father and the Son, that the world may believe that uh, the Father has sent the Son. And so we see the kind of standard by which we are to be one. We are to be one with God in Christ, as God the Father and God the Son are one in himself. To be one like that is to be one in purpose and will and character, as we've mentioned before. And that is why, in Galatians 2 and verse 20, we must die to ourselves to be crucified with Christ, so the life that we live, we live by faith in the Son of God. We submit our will to God so that we can do what God would have us to do. That gets us into an important issue. How can we know God's will? We've spoken of Jesus as the one man. He is fully human, but he's also God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1, 1 and 18. Paul insists that Jesus maintains the fullness of God in bodily form, that he is the exact imprint of the divine image, that he is, in fact, God's icon in Colossians 1.15 and chapter 2 and verse 9. And the Hebrews author says something similar in chapter 1 and verse 3. This is why Jesus can tell his disciples in John 14, when we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. Because in Jesus we have a demonstration of the love, mercy, grace, justice, kindness, patience, and instruction of God. He truly is God the Word and God the Son. He instructs us not just in word, but also through what he does. This is why Paul says what he does in Romans 8, verse 29, that those who uh, who are in Christ have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And so if we're going to have a restored relationship with God, we need to strive to be one with God as God is one in himself. And that can only happen if we begin to manifest the characteristics that define God. So we need to look more and more like Jesus in our lives, thinking, feeling, and acting the way he would have us to thinking and feel and act, to follow him, that we are to walk even as he walked in 1 John, 3, 1 John 2, 6, excuse me, that we have come to know him in verses 3 through 5 of that chapter, if we do his commandments. So we need to commit to righteous living if we want to be reconciled to God our creator, the loving God of justice, and to live in harmony with him and his creation. Now, it's not an overnight process. It is a long and difficult one. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, it's a maturity process. When we come to the end of it, uh, we're not going to become as God. Uh, We still continue to fall short of his glory in Romans 3, 23. And we're not going to be able to do it on our own. It didn't work that way before we came to know Jesus. And it's certainly not going to work that way after we've come to know Jesus. And in fact, we're going to stumble often. But we need to get up, we need to ask for forgiveness, 
and to maintain that trusting relationship with God in 1 John 1 and verse 9. We must remember what Paul said in Philippians 4.13, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Now, Paul himself says in Romans 8.31-32 that if Jesus, God has given of his own Son, how will he not also with him give us all things? That, in fact, he is willing to do and able to do far beyond what we can even imagine if we would trust in him in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. And that is why we do well to turn away from the ways of the world and instead to put our trust in Jesus as our Lord, to receive forgiveness of our sins in his name, to become like him, to become one with God as God is one within himself, to enjoy that restored relationship with God, uh, that we have found the one whom our soul has been seeking after so much time and so much distress, that we may be forever with the Lord. We're so thankful for your interest and consideration. Uh, if you'd like to consider what we had said previously about God, or maybe you'd like to consider as we're going to uh, continue to discuss uh, one another and the one story, or perhaps you'd like to learn about other uh, articles or discussions that we've had, uh, or you'd like to get in contact with us because of a prayer request, you'd like to meet with us, uh, if there's any way we can be of an encouragement to you in these ways or others, please visit us at VenetiaChristChrist.org, or you can also find us on social media. Um, if you'd like to get in contact with me personally, you can reach me at my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Again, this is Ethan Long Henry, working at the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. We're again very glad that you've joined us, and we hope and pray that you have a great day.